As you're sitting down, if you have your Bible, if you wouldn't mind taking it and turning to Romans chapter 7, you will benefit from following along in the scriptures as we will open up this text today and worship through seeking to understand it and submit to it and apply it to our hearts and our lives today. If you don't have a Bible, then it's on page 943 in the Black Pew Bible that's around you. And if you don't have a Bible at all, then you're welcome to keep that one. It's our gift to you to have the Word of God in your home and in your life. Romans chapter 7, we're, we're going to be today in verses 7 through 12. So let's read that together. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. For I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. This gets at the whole idea of the law, the way that the law comes to sinful hearts, the way that we hear it, the way that we would rebel against it in our heart when we hear it. And it reminds me of those lists of silly laws that you see every once in a while. Have you ever seen one of those lists of weird laws? Sometimes they're even called stupid laws, something like that. One of the, the, one of the laws that you always see near the top of that list is that in Alaska, it is illegal to push a live moose out of a moving airplane. And we hear that and we think, well, okay. And you can understand why that would be called a silly law, although the fact that it's on the books means somebody did it. So they had to actually make a law against it. I don't know what those stories were like. I don't know why they would do that. You hear that, and, and you say, well, that's, that's silly. That's, that's a weird law, maybe even a stupid law. But if you start to think about it, you can realize it's not really a bad law. There's things about pushing a live moose out of a moving airplane that we can understand why you shouldn't do that. You know, even if you're trying to get some moose meat, uh, you know... Falling from an airplane is probably not the, the most humane way to slaughter that moose. Seems a little bit cruel, unnecessarily. Uh, and at the same time, you're, you're really, if you do that, you're putting people on the ground in danger. A moose might fall on their house. You're putting the people in the airplane in danger. They might fall out as they're trying to shove this live moose out of the door. That would be kind of a feat. So yes, it's a good law, but why did they have to make that law? Well, because people had to hear it. And the weird thing is that sometimes some portion of people who hear that law start thinking to themselves, well, I'm going to find a way to get to Alaska just to do that. Because that law is so ridiculous that I'm going to go show them how ridiculous it is. I'm going to go do it. Now, most of those people probably don't end up doing it. But a lot of us probably know the feeling in our heart, and maybe it even came up in your heart about that law in church this morning when I said it where you started thinking, that is so ridiculous, I wonder if I could get away with it. That's what tends to happen when the, the good law comes into contact with sinful hearts 
And that's what this passage is about today, except not about weird laws that you might find in various states, but about the law of God, the eternal moral law of God, of what is right and what is wrong that he would present to us in the Scriptures, his good and lasting law. And yet, even though the law is good, that's not good news. Because for sinners, the goodness of the law just shows us the evil of our own hearts. God's law, as it says in the very beginning of verse 7 of Romans 7, God's law is not the problem with us. God's law is not the problem. We need to hear this. It says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin by no means. Now there's been, I think, three other times already in the book of Romans where he has brought up a question and then answered it himself by saying, by no means, no way, absolutely not. Get out of here. Now, most of the time when he's brought this up before, it's had something to do with the accusation that people would bring about, well, if you trust in Jesus for your salvation, if you just, by faith alone, if you're saved from your sins, well, that just frees you up to sin all the time. You know, should, should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. And this is related to that because as he's going through here, he's, he's starting to say, well, you can't be saved by the law. The, the law is going to kill you. It's not going to save you. And in the verses that came before this that we looked at last week, it talked about how as we were born sinful, born in need of, of rescue from our sin, not born good, not born innocent, but born guilty of the sin of Adam and born with a sin nature that's going to play out in our hearts and in our lives, that, that one of the ways to describe that as it said in these verses before, is, is that we were born united to the law. We, we were born bound to the law, like the law was a husband that we were born married to, that we didn't ask for, but we had it. And we were in bondage to the law. But through the death of Christ, he said in the last verses, we died. And that marriage bond, that union between us and the law died at the cross. And because of Jesus' death, that we now by faith, as it's applied to us and brought to us by the Holy Spirit, we, we are united to Jesus. So that when we come to faith in Jesus, that old bond with the law is cut and now we are in union with Christ. And what does it mean that it's cut? Does that mean, does it mean, well, the law was sin? Does that mean we ditch the law? Does that mean we say, well, nobody should ever live by any rules? That's the question here. That's why he has to ask this, is because what he just said about the law and about Christ would, could easily be, be misunderstood. It could easily be misunderstood to be saying, well, the law was a bad thing, and, and we need to be rescued from the law because the law was a problem. No. What he's saying here, what he's driving home is that the law is not the problem. He's going to round out this section, this paragraph in verse 12 by saying that the law is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not the law. The problem is the sinner. When sinful hearts come into contact with the law, that that is bad. That is explosive. But we need to address this question because the fact that he raises it shows something that was built in to the gospel itself 
a question that you could see right here in the New Testament that's played itself out through church history and all kinds of different sects and ways that people have interpreted the Old Testament and the New Testament, where maybe there is this feeling, okay, well, if we really believed the gospel, then we would just let go of the law and say that's not something that we need to pay any attention to anymore. This has come about in a couple of different ways. In in the earliest uh, days of Christianity, just after the completion of the New Testament, there was a pastor whose name was Marcion. And Marcion had the idea, I I should say he was a pastor, but he was a heretic. And his heretical idea was that the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament are different gods. He, He would look and he would say, look in the Old Testament, You see there that God, when he came and he delivered the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai to the people where all the people of Israel heard those Ten Commandments aloud from the voice of God, there was thunder, there was lightning, there were clouds, there was fire, and his voice boomed so much that the people begged not to hear it anymore because they knew that they would be destroyed by this God who gave the law. That God is a God of law and vengeance, and that God is bad. And look in the New Testament and you see the God who's good. You you see Jesus who came and gave himself up and gives love and grace. That is heresy. But that's one way that people have said, okay, the law is sin, we can just ditch it, is to say the Old Testament is gone. We are letting go of that God of the Old Testament, and we're just now going to take the New Testament and we're just going to say, okay, we, we, we have no more law, we have only grace. And you say to yourself, well, nobody does that anymore. Yeah, they do. There's a guy named Andy Stanley down in Atlanta who runs a very, very large church and has a lot of influence. And he has publicly said that Christians need to get unhitched from the Old Testament. That's the wording that he uses. Making it pretty plain that he is a false teacher. And, and so this, this is a natural thing, a natural misunderstanding, even a natural heresy that can come up if you don't get what is being said about the law, where you might think, well, we need to just completely start ignoring all that stuff that came from Jesus. Now, there's some who are not heretics who wouldn't go that far, but, but might say, well, but the, the, the law was fulfilled, And the Bible speaks, the New Testament speaks of Jesus fulfilling the law. And they would say, well, okay, well, the law is fulfilled. That means I'm free from the Ten Commandments. I'm free even from any commandment that's in the Old Testament. And they would say, well, what do you follow then? They would say, they would use New Testament words, the law of Christ, which is there, the law of love. But there's a problem there, which is this. When Jesus says the law of love, when, when Jesus gives his law, he says, here's the greatest commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know what Jesus said that that summarizes? He said that's a summary of the Ten Commandments. He says the whole law is summed up in these commands. It's not like there was a difference between those Old Testament Ten Commandments and Jesus' command to love God and to love neighbor. He says, no, here's the summary, which means if you want to know what it looks like to love God and to love your neighbor, 
one of the ways to know that is to, to expand on it and start setting your mind on the Ten Commandments. In fact, if you start saying, well, okay, I'm just going to love. I'm just going to have the law of love. I'm going to throw out the commands of the Old Testament. Well, that's, that's just going to kill you too because you're going to be found not to be loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're going to be found not to love your neighbor as yourself even if you think to yourself, I'm not one of those legalists. I just love orphans and widows. You love them enough? You love them enough to save yourself? The answer is no, you don't, and neither do I. And I wish I could say I did, but only Jesus did. So what do we do here? Well, we need to see that Paul is driving home the point here that the law is not the problem. The sinners are the problem. And in thinking about that, we need to know, well, what is the law? I just want to remind you of a couple things. If you were around when we went through the Ten Commandments, I tried to say this stuff over and over and over again, and I'm going to say it over again now. For one thing, you need to know that there's a difference between the law and the gospel, okay? And when I say there's a difference between the law and the gospel, I'm not just saying that in the Old Testament you had to sacrifice bulls and goats, and in the New Testament Jesus is the sacrifice. That's true. That is true. But when we say law here, and I think when Paul says law here, this is talking not just about like, you know, a portion of the Old Testament law that's now set aside because Christ, because it was just appointing to Christ and now Christ has done it. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the rules that God actually has for us. And these are good rules. And, and, and when we say the law and the gospel, what we mean by the law is God's good rules, Right? So love one another, that is a great rule, and it's law. Yes, you ought to love one another, and no, you cannot be saved by loving one another. And if your standard is love one another, you will be found below that standard and condemned. So the law is God's good rules, but the gospel is God's good news. The gospel is not something you can do. If somebody ever comes to you and says, you're not preaching the whole gospel because in your gospel you haven't gone far enough into talking about helping the poor. Well, two things there. Maybe for one thing, maybe they are really seeing a fault in you that you ought to help the poor more. And you can take that seriously. But what you don't need to take from that is helping the poor is part of the gospel. That's not something that God has done for us. It's something that we're commanded to do. The gospel is, here is what God has done for you. Not do this and live, but Jesus has done this for you. Jesus has died for your sins and risen from the dead. Jesus is Lord. Come to him in repentance and faith. Trust in him. Not to do some sort of a work for God, but to trust in the work that God has done for us. So there's the law that is God's good rules, and there's the gospel that is God's good news. And within that law, because this is a passage that's about the law and about Christians and even non-Christians and their relationship to the law, we need to know that within the Old Testament law, there was a division of the law. You had in the, 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 the Old Testament law and the, the laws that God gave from Mount Sinai, he gave moral laws that we call the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And then he gave civil laws that governed how the, uh, the nation of Old Testament Israel as a theocracy, 
as a church state all in one as how they were to operate their courts and things. That was in Exodus chapter 21 through 24. And then after that, he gave what we call ceremonial laws, which were about the building of the tabernacle and the the priest's garments and the sacrifices and all of those kinds of things. And so when Christ came, he has has fulfilled in such a way as to do away with the civil laws and the ceremonial laws, although we can still learn an awful lot from those and be pointed to Christ in all of those. And he has still what we call an eternal moral law that's summed up in the Ten Commandments. One of those Ten Commandments is the one that's in this verse, you shall not covet, as he brings out that law. There's the threefold division of the law, and there's uses of the law. There's ways that the law comes to us and God's good rules and how they should be used in human hearts. I'm going to go, instead of going the first, second, and third, I'm going to go backwards in the list if you know what they are already. I'm going from three to one, but that doesn't matter if you don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, So one of those uses of the law is that we as Christians need to be driven to obey God, right? So, So when we as Christians see God saying to us, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, that we see that in faith in Christ and we say, yes, I want to do that. I want to grow in my love for God. I want to grow in my love for neighbor. I want to do a better job. I want to put off the old self and the things that went along with it. And I want to put on the new self. And I want to put on Christ every day. That is is one of the uses of the law. When we see God's good rules for us to say, I want to be more like that. I want to be sanctified. I want to grow in holiness. Another use of the law is something that applies even to unbelievers, which is this. If you break it, you'll be punished. So don't break it. So there's something even for unbelievers where there's a fear of punishment that that the law being there would hold back some of the breaking of the law, at least in external ways. It's not going to prevent the heartbreaking of the law, as we're going to see but it can hold back somebody from actually murdering physically because they're worried about being punished. But what Paul's concentrating on here in in this passage is what we call the first use of the law, the number one use of the law, which is to show us sinners that we are sinners, that we need Jesus. It's to show us that we're lost, that we cannot make it on our own, that we can't save ourselves, that you can't obey in such a way as to make yourself just before God, and that our only hope can't be in the law. It has to be in the gospel. It has to be in the person of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you this. Is, Is the murderer's problem that there are laws against murder? No. The murderer's problem is that he's a murderer. Is the thief's problem that there are laws against stealing? No, his problem is he's a thief. Is the perjurer's problem that there are laws against bearing false witness? No, the problem is he's a liar. And is our problem as sinners that God has made laws against sin? No. The law is not the problem. The sin is the problem. And as we're going to see, the sin starts in the heart And as God's law comes into contact with those sinful hearts, there is an explosive character to it. 
Have you, have you ever made one of those uh, volcanoes? Maybe you made it for school when you were in elementary school where you put together baking soda and vinegar. You got, if, if you've just got baking soda and vinegar sitting next to each other in your, your kitchen cabinet, they're just going to sit there, right? But when they hit each other, what happens? There's this explosion, just like your Diet Coke and your Mentos, right? That is the law and the sinful heart when they come together. The, the law was already righteous, the sinner was already a sinner, but they come together and it's explosive. Look in verse 7 still, but the second half of verse 7, he says, but yet if, I had not been, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had, said, had not said, you shall not covet. Now there's a question, who is Paul talking about? Even at this part, you, a lot of you guys know that when we get later to the, the verses that follow this one, there's a big question about who is Paul talking about, but there's a question about who is Paul talking about even in these verses when he uses the word I. Is Paul talking about himself? Is Paul talking about Adam because he feels you know, that he is a son of Adam and here's what happened with Adam in the garden when he was tempted to sin? Some people think that that's what this is about. Is he talking about Israel? in the wilderness, that Paul, as, a, as one of the children of Israel, is saying, well, this is me. It's like I was there in the wilderness, and, and Israel got tempted into sin right after the law came on Mount Sinai. Well, I, I, just, I, I think we ought to just take it pretty straightforwardly. I think Paul's talking about himself, and I think he's talking about himself in a way that we can all relate to, and I think he's doing that all the way through this entire chapter, that he's talking about himself and saying, don't we get this? Haven't we been there? Don't we understand this? That when I, when I came to know the law, that I came to know sin. He says, I would not have known sin. Well, what does that mean? Is that, does that mean that he, he didn't know that it was wrong to disobey God before? No. But when you're confronted with the actual rule, it just puts it in your face right? You can kind of keep something hidden back in your conscience. And even though your conscience keeps on telling you, and the conscience is God-given, even though it keeps telling you, uh, something's not right here, when the law comes in its actual words and says, here is how you are a sinner, boy, that hits you hard. And, and he says that, and he gives the example here about coveting, about coveting. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet, or some translations of the Bible use the word lust there because those are the same word in Greek. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. He's saying this. He's saying, I was convicted by the law. And I think part of what he's saying is that his conviction by the law was part of what was necessary for him to be born again. For him to come to an understanding of his own sin such that he would know his need to throw himself on the mercy of Christ. Now that doesn't mean that everybody that you ever tell the Ten Commandments to is going to get saved on the spot. Right? It takes the Holy Spirit applying those things. Jesus said in John 16 that the Holy Spirit is the one who will convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. But this does mean that God's law is part of the means that the Holy Spirit will use to do that. To say, here is God's righteous standard that you have broken. 
you need Jesus, ma'am. You need Jesus, sir. This example of covetousness, I think some people would wonder, well, why did, why did he say this one? Well, for one thing, you need to know that it blows apart the whole hypothesis that, that Paul was just talking about the civil and ceremonial laws, that when Paul was talking about the law at the beginning of verse 7, that he was just saying, well, we're no longer married to the idea of sacrificing bulls for our sins because now Jesus was sacrificed. No, he's saying, look, you shall not covet. That's part of the law I'm talking about. That's part of the law. There is no Christian, I said this last week, I'll say it again, there's no Christian that I know of who's an actual Christian who's going to say, now that you know Jesus, covet all you want. No. <laughs> we still know it's wrong. We still know it's part of God's law. We still know that we're, we, we ought to be keeping this rule. But he says, here's what happened when I came into contact with this law. It stirred up all kinds of covetousness in my heart. Now think about who, who, who it is that the Holy Spirit is using to write this passage. It's the Apostle Paul. This, this is not somebody who grew up in a, a, a wild pagan household. He, he grew up in a strict Jewish household who wanted him to know the law they, they, they would have sent him to religious school from the time that he was young. They sent him off to Jerusalem to learn from the Pharisee Gamaliel. He was somebody who, who he testified about himself in Philippians 3, that before he came to know Christ, he even felt that he was blameless according to the law because he was trying to obey it so hard. But he testifies here that command, that tenth out of the ten commandments, got at me. Because you know what the tenth command, you know what sets apart the tenth commandment from all the other nine commandments? It's the only one that explicitly is just about your heart. Now, all ten commandments are about your heart, but the tenth commandment is the only one you can't make any human law against. You, you can make a human law not to blaspheme, not to break the third commandment. You can make a human law not to make idols. You can make a human law not to murder, but you cannot make a human enforceable law you shall not covet because that's something that only goes on in the heart. And what's happening there is that the 10th commandment is God signaling to us all of these commandments need to be kept from the heart. Not just about whether you would do this in your words and in your actions and in ways that could be seen on the outside, but that God is looking at your heart. It even gets at some of the other commandments. You know, there's the, the seventh commandment that says you shall not commit adultery. And as Jesus pointed out, there were a lot of people who felt very righteous because they had not externally committed adultery. But he came along and said, if anyone looks at a woman with lustful intent, he has broken this command. He's committed adultery with her in his heart. But it didn't take until the Sermon on the Mount to say that. The 10th commandment says that. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And so it says here that Paul, even as he's trying so hard to break all of these, or excuse me, to keep all of these commandments on the outside, this commandment would come and say, you're a lawbreaker on the inside. You have coveted what is your neighbor's. You have thought to yourself that what they have is what I ought to have. 
God has done me wrong in lining up my life circumstances the way that they are. It is a heart rebellion against the God of the universe. And you think to yourself, well, it's not that bad because I just wish that I was richer and that's not such a sin. And in the day of judgment, that would strike you into hell with a lightning blast like that. Because there's disobedience from the heart. You know what you can't correct with any amount of hard work, any amount of self-improvement, any amount of self-sacrifice, any amount of behavioral change, any amount of relief from suffering, any amount of suffering, any amount of good deeds, any amount of worship rituals, none of those things can correct your heart, your covetous, sinful heart. And the law just shows you are a sinner. God's righteous standard is good and you are not. That's what it shows. What did it do? It even stirred up sin. Verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. That's what I said earlier. Some of you guys, when you heard the, the, the law about the moose, you thought, how can I get to Alaska and break that law? Hopefully you're not really going to do it, but some of your hearts thought that. I remember when I, uh, the first time that this kind of clicked for me after I had read Romans 7, I was at a bowling alley. And uh, I, I had just eaten, you know, a basket of chicken tenders or something, and I was about to, to go throw away my garbage. And on the, the trash can, there was this sign that said, do not throw away the baskets. And I didn't do it, but the inclination of my heart was, I'll show you, I'll throw away this basket. I wasn't thinking of throwing away the basket until I saw the rule. But you know what the rule did? It stirred something up in my heart that ought not to have been there. And that's what he's saying happened here. It's just like I told you guys a while back about the, the slide at the park near the parsonage. It's this tiny little slide, maybe six feet tall. And there's all kinds of rules next to it. I went back and looked at it recently, and, and the biggest rule, the biggest print is no sleigh riding on this slide. There's no way that's even possible. But when I see that rule, I think, maybe I should try it. <laughs> guys, that's what the law does and even the Ten Commandments, even as you open your Bible, even, even you look here and you think, I'm doing this holy thing to read my Bible. Well, there's commands there that are going to come in contact with sinful hearts, especially unregenerate sinful hearts, and explode, explode. And Paul's saying, before I knew Christ, even as I was trying to do all these things to pretend to be righteous, that command you shall not covet produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The law was not sin, but his heart was sinful. He explains that a little bit. He says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. This is another one of those things, hard to understand, lots of interpretations. What does he mean when he says, I once was alive? Is he talking about being innocent in childhood or something like that? Is he talking about the state of Adam before Adam's sin? No, I think, I think this is what it means. I think he's saying, I could have fooled myself into thinking that I wasn't a sinner until the law of God exposed me and even stirred up more sin, not because it's sinful, but because I am. Think of it like this. If, if you were living in a house where there was a colony of rattlesnakes underneath the floorboards, 
you could go along thinking that everything is fine when in fact it's really, really not. You could think this is a fine place to live. Maybe every once in a while you'd be watching TV and you'd kind of think, did I just hear a rattle somewhere? No, you could dismiss it. And that's what the conscience can do apart from the law. Even though there's a a kind of works of the law written on our hearts, as it says back in Romans 2, the conscience can kind of say, well, yeah, it's bugging me, but I'm fine. I'm a good person. Well, you know what the law does? Is the law comes and it starts ripping up the floorboards. It's not like the death wasn't there before, but when the law comes into contact with the sinful heart and exposes it, the floorboards are ripped up, the rattlers come out, the fangs come out, and sin is slithering all over the place. And you can say, sin has come alive and I have died because the law has ripped up the floorboards of my life and exposed what's really there in the heart. Guys, you need to be saved by the grace of Jesus. If you're trying to just be a good person or to do enough good things or to be involved enough in church, on the day of judgment, all that those things are going to do is expose the sinfulness of your heart and bring death. But when we come to Jesus, there is real life. I have to say some more sad things, though. Because he says some more of these things. He says, I once was alive. He says, when sin came alive, I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. What's that talking about? Well, here's what God says in Leviticus 18, verses 4 and 5. He says, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them... He shall live by them. I am the Lord. Was God lying there? No, this is absolute truth out of the mouth of Yahweh our God. Obey perfectly and you will live. That is true. Have you obeyed perfectly? No, you have not. There is one who has obeyed perfectly. And his name is not Paul. His name is not Daniel Wigginton. His name is Jesus. All the rest of us, when we see these verses, you shall keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. If we start to think to ourselves, well, I'm going to do them, I'm going to get better. I'm going to get better, and when I get good enough, then I'll have eternal life. No, you won't. All that's going to happen is that God's rules are going to rip the floorboards out of your house and show what a sinner you've been all along. That's all that they'll do to you. He says, it promised life, but it proved to be death. He's talked about this already in Romans. He says in in 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He said in 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all of us. He says in 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's the only thing that we are able to earn as sinners from God is death. He said in Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And here he says, the commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. 
How did it happen? Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So, I don't know how many conversations you have had with unbelievers where you were trying to share the gospel with them, but I'd say in at least half of those conversations, the person who does not believe, who at that moment stands condemned in their sin before God, will attest to themselves, I am a good person. Do you know what that good person needs? They need Jesus, but to know that they need Jesus, they need to be confronted with the law. They need to know that they are not good. So many people will say, I don't don't need what you're offering because my life's pretty good already. As, As though the standard for what you need is whether your life's going well or not. Or some people would even say, I don't think that I need that God because things are not going well for me. And why would he do that to me? I want something different. People have all kinds of ways to put up these walls so that they don't have to be confronted with the law that would expose them as sinners. Right? What we got to do, this is what had to be done with us. If you've come to Christ, this has been done with you. And it's what has to be done with every sinner is to know God's law shows that I stand dead and condemned. I thought I was good. I thought I was alive. I thought I had free will. I thought I could do all these things, but God's law shows I am dead. I need something outside me to save me. Those conversations you'll, you'll, you'll have with somebody, they'll say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. And what I like to say is, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a good person? And it's amazing how often they will bring up to me the Ten Commandments before I ever say anything about them. I'll say, well, you're a Christian. You know the Ten Commandments. And I think that this is really what all religions have in common is that everybody should be a good person and you, you shouldn't lie and you shouldn't steal and you, you shouldn't murder. And they might not bring up commit adultery for various reasons. They're definitely not going to bring up you shall not covet. They're definitely not going to bring up, you shall have no other gods before me, right? But we can start bringing those up. We can say, do you know what God's standard says? Well, let's even take one of the simple ones that you said. You shouldn't lie. Have you ever told a lie? You know what that makes you? A liar. If you want to know how to do this, just go to YouTube and search for Ray Comfort He'll teach you how to do it. He'll show you doing it with lots of people. But he's, it, it, the law is going to come in contact with sinful hearts and show you. you just, just because you're not always lying <laughs> doesn't mean you're not a liar. Reminds me of, of uh, Planned Parenthood came out a, a, a couple of years ago. They were trying to make themselves look better. This is an abortion clinic chain trying to make themselves look better by by publishing this statistic, abortion is only 3% of what we do. Now, for one thing, that's a very deceptive number because it's like if I went to the mechanic for an oil change and and they list out 10 things on the bill that they did and only one of them is is the oil change and they say, well, the oil change is only 10% of what we did. So that's what they were doing, but at the same time, it showed even at the highest levels of that organization that their conscience was pinged. They knew this ought not to be what we're doing. But we only do it 3% of the time. I only murder 3% of the time. So I'm not a murderer. 
Now, we in here, we get that, that that's ridiculous. We get babies need to live. We get that, but bring it back to your own heart. What is it that you would say to yourself, no, I'm not so bad because I don't do that all the time. It doesn't define who I am. Do you know how many times you have to break the law to be convicted? Once. And that's how it is in God's court, too. And the law is going to show that. And we need to show that. And we need to see that for ourselves so that we can come to Christ. If you haven't, you need to know you are a sinner. There is dead men's bones in your heart. There is rattlesnakes in there. And you need to be cleaned up from the inside out. And it can only happen through the blood of Jesus shed for your sins. And we need to tell people that. We need to use the law for its first use, which is to show that sinners need to be saved and then bring the gospel of the grace of Jesus to say, here is where it's come from. The Son of God on the cross. The last verse, it says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's verse 12. What does that mean? Well, it means that God's law is good. It says it's holy. Holy means set apart, reminds us of God. This has to do with its origin. It's from God. The law is not from Satan or from the world. The law is from God. It's holy. It says that the law, the commandment, is righteous. There's nothing wrong with it. Now, before you come to know Christ, you might accuse it of having something wrong with it. You might say, how dare you make a rule against that thing? How dare you make a rule that I have to worship that God and no other gods? How dare you make a rule that I shouldn't covet and do what's private in my own heart of what I want? But this says, no, it is righteous. It is righteous. And it shows that even the sinful desires that we have in our hearts, even before they work out in actions, that those desires themselves are condemnable sins before God. And he's the righteous judge. And it says also that God's law is good. Now, this is good not just in terms that it's holy and not just in terms that it's righteous, but something else in addition to that too. That it is good for God, it's good for the world that he made, and it's good for human societies, and it's good for you. God's law is good for you. Now, sometimes, if you, if you don't know Christ and you hear God's law is good for you, what that's going to sound like is, is like a, a, a nurse at a children's hospital in the 1950s coming at a kid with this big bottle of, of goo and saying, take this medicine, it's good for you. That's going to be your feeling about the law of God until you come to know the lawgiver, until you come to be right with him through faith in Jesus Christ and you see, yes, the very law that I've broken... The very law that he died to save me from breaking is good for me. It is good. And I want to follow in what he has said. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, we need to look at the commands of God. We need to be exposed by them. We need to repent. We need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to use the law in, in telling people about Jesus so that we can then tell them how good the gospel is. We need to know this. We, believers, I want to encourage you in this. In, in Romans 5.20, just remember this. The law came in to increase the trespass, to rip up the floorboards. But where sin increased, grace abounded 
all the more. Come and trust in the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Christ has been slain for my sins, for the sins of this multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. God, I pray that you would take the, uh, the blood of Christ and apply it to real human hearts, bring about repentance of sin that would turn people to faith in Jesus, bring about faith in Jesus that would spur on ongoing repentance. And God, I pray that your, your righteous law would be um, good to us, even as it exposes us, even as it was explosive to our hearts at one time, I pray that it would drive us to Jesus for our salvation. God, I pray that you would make us zealous evangelists and to use the law in our evangelism, not as though rule-keeping were uh, going to bring us to God, but to just show us we need to come to God. God, I pray for any who might be here who are apart from Christ today. Uh, I pray that you would rescue them from the curse of the law, and I pray that you would bring them into the grace of Jesus by faith. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.